All right, good morning, church. I hope you're doing uh, well today. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I uh, hope you got big plans, and I do want to remind us uh, to remember uh, what Memorial Day is all about, uh, all the fallen soldiers that have given their lives for the sake of our freedom and even for the ability for us to gather together and, and worship today. And so definitely remember that. Uh, I want to open to a passage this morning that I believe is super applicable uh, for uh, kind of where I am in life, but also as we celebrate uh, Memorial Day and remember those that have fallen before us. We also uh, have seen uh, the events at the school shooting in Texas over the past week. Uh, and we also, just us, me even personally, uh, with my grandmother passing away uh, this week, uh, just there's been a lot of death going on around me and in our country. And uh, there's nothing greater in the scriptures to preach in the face of death than the resurrection. And so if you got your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, that's where we'll be uh, this morning. And this is the single greatest event in the history of the world. Uh, it has no competition and no comparison. And because of that, uh, it is the foundation of our faith. And so our faith is not based on feelings. It's not based on uh, the words of uh, any person. It's based on an event. Uh, and it's based on the event of Jesus Christ coming and dying and being raised from the dead. And so that's where Paul is going in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, if you haven't been here, we've been in this series called Be the Church, where we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, and we've just got out of this section where he was dealing with the gathering of the church, and now he's going to jump into uh, some theological corrections uh, that need to be made in the church uh, in Corinth. So let's read together, starting in verse 1. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, uh, it'll be on the screen behind me, so follow along as we read together. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance." that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, that's the 12 uh, disciples, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, Paul, also as one abnormally born. And so before Paul jumps into correcting what they were believing about the resurrection, Paul first reminds them of the message of the gospel. And this is important because gospel is a word that you've probably heard here a lot. But do you know what the word gospel means? Do you know why your faith is built on the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news, but here Paul tells us it's the good news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is the foundation of our faith. And you say, Billy, well, how can death be good news? Well, when you understand what Christ was dying for, which was mine and your sins, and taking the punishment that we deserved, you understand that we could not save ourselves, and he did and accomplished salvation through the only way that it would be made possible, which was through his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is not a made-up story. 
This is a real life event that took place over 2,000 years ago. It is the truth. The Old Testament predicted that it would happen. The whole Old Testament leads up to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Historians have confirmed it. Paul says here, hundreds of eyewitnesses testified to it, uh, 500 to be exact, of which one was Jesus' own brother. Uh, how hard would it be to convince your own brother that you were God? Think about it, very hard, and Jesus was able to do it. Why? Because the resurrection was true. Not only that, but the greatest movement the world has ever seen, which is Christianity, bears witness to the fact that this is a true event that really did happen. And Paul understands this, and he wants, as he's thinking about the church here in Corinth, to remind them that remembering the gospel is essential. He says it's of first importance to us in the Christian life. The gospel doesn't need to be this foreign term to us. It needs to be something that we think about and we think about often. Why? For a lot of reasons. One, uh, the gospel is the power of God that saved us in the past, right? So we look back at the gospel and what it's done. Not only that, but the gospel is the power of God that sustains us in the present, right? So it's still the gospel that connects us to, with God. It's still the gospel that continues to help us grow. And not only that, but the gospel is the power of God that will keep us in the future. Christ didn't just buy our salvation and justification on the cross. He bought our sanctification all the way even to when he glorifies us. He bought all of that on the cross. It's also what compels our obedience. It renews our joy. It strengthens us when we are weary. It stirs us up when we are complacent. It is what gives us hope no matter what circumstance that we face. This is why we sing it. This is why I preach it. This is why we pray it. This is why we memorize it. This is why we celebrate baptism and communion so often at our church is because we want to remember Christ and what he's done. We here say at this church that it's all about Jesus and we believe that because the gospel is central in all that we do. Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, says it this way, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope, and it is remembering this gospel that breathes life into our souls. And this is what Paul knows, and this is what he's reminding the Corinthians about, the gospel. Listen to verse nine, he says this, for I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What a testimony, underline that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. You see, the grace of God is not some distant, far-off message for the spiritual elite. No, the gospel is, and the grace of God is something personal that you and I experience. And not just when we're saved, 
but over and over again in the Christian life as we remember Christ and we battle in this life and we recognize sin in our hearts and then connect it with the fact that God loved us enough to die for this so that we didn't have to be punished for it. And when we begin to experience this grace on a consistent basis, it changes us. Like It becomes personal in our lives. Paul says it is by the grace of God that he is what he is. Paul knew that it wasn't just the grace of God that saved him, but it was the grace of God that even continued motivating him to be obedient and all of the hard work and the sacrifice he was making for the mission of God. And Paul reminded the Corinthians here that at one time they had believed the same time but now they had begun to be influenced by some bad theology and some people coming in with a different message. Listen to verse 12. He says, but if it, is, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, in Corinth, there was a false teaching, and this false teaching denied that the resurrection uh, happened, bodily resurrection of Christ. Many of the Christians there had grown up in a Greek worldview. Uh, Greeks believed that our souls were immortal, but our bodies weren't. Essentially, when we die, that our souls live on forever, but our bodies are not resurrected. Uh, and some of the Corinthian Christians were buying into this uh, belief. Now, I don't think they understood that to buy into that belief that it would contradict that Jesus bodily resurrected from the grave, but Paul's about to connect the dots for them. And this was a big deal, because if the resurrection isn't true, then Jesus himself wasn't resurrected in bodily form. And if Jesus wasn't resurrected, Paul's about to point out, there are some major terrible implications of that. Listen to what Paul says. Notice he uses the language, if this didn't happen then and gives us the implication. So follow along verse 13. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile or empty, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul basically says, we, they should feel sorry for us because we bought into a lie if Christ was not truly resurrected. The implications of them not believing in the bodily resurrection are huge. Namely, if the resurrection is not true, then Christ didn't raise from the dead. And if Christ was not raised, uh, Paul points out a few things. One, that Jesus is still dead. If Christ was not raised, then Jesus lied to us. And if Christ was not raised, then our preaching of the gospel is ridiculous. It's useless. We're wasting our time. It says that if Christ didn't rise from the grave, then the disciples were all liars or false witnesses. If Christ did not rise from the grave, then there is no forgiveness of sins. We're still in our sins. Uh, there is no salvation in Christ, uh, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then Christianity is a big fraud, and, and our faith is empty, 
And there is no future hope because death is the end of all. And it doesn't matter what we do with our life. It doesn't matter that uh, Cheyenne and, and Heather and Bo and Lauren are packing up their bags and going to share the gospel in maybe a hostile country where they don't like Christianity, where they may could very easily sacrifice uh, a lot of things, including be killed there if they land in the right spot. Because if they're doing it for a lie, it doesn't matter. But you and I both know the resurrection is true. And because the resurrection is true, it calls us to make deep sacrifices for God. And that's why Paul summarizes his statement. And he says, listen, we are of all people the most to be pitied. He says, if it's not true, then people should feel sorry for us because we've invested everything into a lie. And then Paul says, now after hearing these implications, do you still wanna continue to say that the resurrection didn't happen? Right? So one of the things you'll learn about Paul is he's a phenomenal arguer. Like at the end of this, they're probably like literally in the fetal position like, God, did we say that? I don't remember saying that. Did you hear me say that? Because I don't think I believe that, Paul. And Paul's like, no, I heard you say it and you, you said it and it's wrong. And this is why it's wrong. And then next thing you know, he tells them why. But listen to verse 20. He comes back and says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And he was the first fruits. That's an interesting word. It's back in the Old Testament in Leviticus, basically meaning uh, that Christ was kind of the down payment. Think of going to the bank, giving them a down payment. It's the guarantee that you're gonna give them more money. It's the same thing. Christ was our first fruits or our down payment. When he raised from the dead, it was basically a picture of what will happen to our bodies after uh, we, or when we are resurrected as well. He says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep don't you love that the Bible de, de, uh, for believers defines death as sleep? Like our bodies just sleep, our, our soul goes to heaven, but our bodies are at rest until Christ comes and raises them. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, talking about Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. So what he, Paul's saying is Christ obviously was resurrected first after he was buried. Three days later, he raised up. Then he went back to heaven. And now when he comes back, which we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, uh, he will raise us up at his second coming uh, to be resurrected like him. Verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he is destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about the end at Revelation 20 and 21. Uh, after the millennial reign, what happens is Jesus comes and uh, destroys death and Satan once and for all. For he, verse 27, has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this not, does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. So when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all and in all. And so since Christ has truly been raised, Paul basically says, we have hope for the future. So we should not fear the future because Christ was raised as the first fruits. We should look to the future with hope. We will be resurrected like Christ bodily and our spirit when we die will go to heaven. We will not die in the order of Adam. So if we were still in Adam and not in Christ, we would die uh, the same way people have who don't believe. 
but we will actually now live because we have, uh, we're in the better Adam, which is Christ, when we became a believer. And he says, in the end, the plan of God will prevail. Revelation is true. Death and Satan will be defeated, and God will establish his perfect kingdom here on earth. And if we're a believer, we will get to be a part of this kingdom. He's referring to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. I'm just going to bounce there and read it. I don't have time to break it down, but this is a great passage for you to write down. This is uh, John at the end of Revelation. Listen to what he says. Verse one, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And then I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. What a day that's going to be. That is what heaven will be like. That is in when God brings the new heaven to earth. There'll be no sin, no crying, no sorrow, none of that. And then listen, then he said, write this down, verse six, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so Paul says, this is where history is leading. Revelation gives us a picture. We already know how this thing ends. Eternity with God for those who believe in a perfect world where there's no sin, no sorrow, and then eternity without God in a fiery lake of burning sulfur for those who do not believe. And so it's important what you believe about the resurrection. Because if you believe the resurrection, you have hope for the future. If you do not, buy into the truth of the gospel and believe that God is who he says he is, then the consequences are devastating. Verse 29, now if there is no resurrection, back to 1 Corinthians, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Now you should read that and be like, what in the world is he talking about? What will those do who are baptized for the dead, like, hold up, people get baptized for dead people? Uh, actually, this is a very common false belief, right, that people can be baptized while they live for relatives that have died before them, and that is not true. It is a false belief. Mormons believe this. A lot of the, the religion in the Greek culture at this time were believing that, and Paul was basically using it against them, saying, look, even these people who believe wrongly believe that there's a resurrection, and then he goes on to verse 30, and he says, and for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He's talking about the apostles, verse 31. He says, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ, Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, hold on, 
That's not in the book of Ephesians. I would love to hear that story. It's not in the Bible, but Paul fought wild beasts in Ephesus. That's pretty cool. With no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead, again, he's going back to this if-then terminology. If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. And I'm saying this to your shame. So we see very clearly what Paul is doing. He's calling the Corinthians back to their senses. They have been led astray by what he calls bad company. They're living it up in sin. That's what they're doing as if the world is all that they have to live for. Paul says, but look at my life. I'm living a completely different life. I'm risking it all for the sake of the spread of the gospel because I'm not living for this world. I'm living for the next world. And this is, this is important because God's word is true. C.T. Studd, one of my favorite missionaries, says it this way, only one life that will soon be passed. So only what's done for Christ will last. Paul's heart for the Corinthians here is that their life would be lived in light of eternity, in light of the truth of the gospel, in light of the fact that they believe that the resurrection is true. And when we live that way, we live with great purpose, we live with great urgency, we live caring more about what God thinks about us in our life than what others think. Because listen, eternal thinking always leads us to live an urgent life, an urgent life for the sake of the gospel, because we as, God, as Jesus taught us in the Gospels, this is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. We are in the world, but not of the world. So our lives should look aliens. We should look different than the world around us because we're marching to the beat of his drum, not the beat of the world's drum. So three things that I wanna talk about with this. I feel like it'll break it down, put it on the bottom shelf. I learned last week I can't preach 60 verses uh, in one sermon, so I cut it in half, 34, in hopes that I won't preach for an hour. So here we go. Three things I want you to take away. The first thing Paul gives them is an encouragement. The encouragement is this, remember the gospel. He's encouraging them, remember the gospel. No matter what you face in this life, no matter if you're a new believer, an old believer, no matter if you're following Jesus and you're in a good situation or a bad situation, Paul's encouragement is to remember the gospel because the gospel is the fuel of the Christian life. It's what keeps us moving forward, keeps our eyes on Christ. The second thing he gives them is a correction. He wants the Corinthians to believe that the resurrection is true and to understand that when they believe that the resurrection is true, it will have a very big impact on their life. When we live in light of the resurrection and in light of the fact that the gospel is true, it changes a lot about how we live, which leads me to the last and where Paul kind of lands here with a question, and that question is, are you living in light of the resurrection? Are you living in light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's break these down. Number one is this, an encouragement. So Paul says to remember the gospel because he believes remembering the gospel is essential in the Christian life. And it's important to remember that we are a forgetful people. I don't know if you've figured this out about yourself, but if you're not constantly reminded of the gospel, your mind will naturally drift towards things other than the gospel. And if you're in here like Billy, well, my mind doesn't do that, then you're lying to yourself. And so you read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, 
Every person in there needed to be reminded with the gospel over and over. Peter says, I'm gonna stir you up by way of reminder. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, hey, I wanna remind you of the faith of your grandmother, Lois. You know, all the time we see God reminding us because reminding, uh, reminding ourselves of the gospel is essential in the Christian life. Paul says it's of first importance. That means everything in your life rises and falls on you remembering the gospel. It's important. Why? Because the gospel is what anchors us when we're facing difficult times. Like if you're following Christ, it is promised in this world you will face trouble. And in that trouble, you need to not, your faith cannot be based on your emotions. It cannot be based on how you feel. It must be based on the truth of the gospel, that you know who God is, you know what he's done, you know his word, and that word and who he is propels you to move forward. It's our clarity when we face times of doubt. Listen, if you've lived life as a Christian in this world uh, for very long, I mean, this week when you hear about the shootings in Texas, I mean, God, how, what, what is going on? And if you're not careful, you'll begin to doubt, but we know that God in the gospel is in control and that he's died and he died for the sake of sinners and we live in a world full of sinners who need the gospel of Jesus Christ and as long as he's given us the opportunity to repent, we're gonna live in a world where bad things happen. But when Christ comes back, he's eradicating all of it. And so we need to live a life of urgent mission in the sake, in the wake of Jesus before he comes back, sharing the gospel with all that we can. Not only is it clarity, but it's our peace in times of confusion. The gospel brings peace. It's our hope when we're facing times of suffering. It's the thing that sustains us when we're in times of despair. It also compels us to obey God when it's, when it's, even, when it's out of our comfort zone. It, it, it's what keeps us when we're ready to give up. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we sing the gospel. This is why we pray the gospel. This is why we memorize the gospel. This is why it's all about Jesus and the gospel is central in everything that we do because this is what our heart and our soul needs more than anything else. If any person ever gets on a stage and tries to encourage you with rules and regulations and doing this and doing that, it does nothing for your soul. It always comes back to Christ because Christ is what compels us to do the things that we do. To deal with behavior issues without dealing with the Christ issue is to basically be running around in circles. So we need to understand that as a church. And then Paul specifically reminds them of three things. A, remember the message. He defines the gospel clearly. So when, when we at Connection Church say the gospel, we don't just need to think this vague message of what is the gospel? It's good news. Well, what's the good news of? No, Paul says here clearly, it's the good news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice it's good news, not good advice. It's good news, not good rules. So it's about a person, about Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. It's good news. How do we know this? Well, Ephesians 2 tells us very clearly, you and I are guilty in our sin. We are condemned because of our sin before a holy God. But in God's grace and his love, he has intervened and he sent Christ to die for our sins in our place. He sent Christ to live the perfect life that you and I could never live that held up to the law to die the death 
that you and I deserve to die, to take on the full punishment and the full wrath of God that was due us for our sin. That's why we say the gospel is Jesus in our place. When he died on the cross, he died for you and I. It should have been us, but it was him in his love and his grace. But Jesus didn't just die. On the third day, God raised him from the dead, and this is significant, right? We can't just preach the death of Christ. We preach the resurrection of Christ. We don't just sulk in the death of Christ and look like a funeral every time we come to church. No, we celebrate in the resurrection of Christ because the resurrection was the validation that God accomplished our salvation effectively. And so we celebrate, there's joy in the house of the Lord because we know what God has done and who he is and death has been defeated and Christ's sacrifice for us was acceptable and sufficient to God. And now we, through faith in Christ, believers can be saved. We can be accepted by God, reconciled to God in relationship. We can live life with God in his plan and in his purposes for eternity, never to be separated again. It's important that we know the message of the gospel. And Paul says this is the message that saves us. This is the message that sustains us and keeps us to eternity. So remember it, hold firm to it, stand on it. It's of first importance, meaning everything rises and falls on it. And I want to be honest with you. There are a lot of churches and a lot of places that you'll go for religious encouragement and edification that are not going to focus on Christ and who he is and what he's done. And I'm telling you right now, it's empty because behavior modification without Christ at the center will never work. It all comes back to sin and the sin issue that we have, and it can only be solved through Christ. And then he goes on and he says, not only remember the message, but remember the testimonies. Listen, we stand on, firmly, on eyewitness testimony. The whole Bible is an eyewitness testimony of Christ. He says he appeared to Peter. This is the same Peter that denied Jesus three times and ran away uh, like a little wimp and went somewhere, and then when Jesus resurrected, he went to him, and then he turned out to be the stud, courageous rock of the church that God built a lot of his movement on. And so you see very clearly, something happened in Peter's life. When he saw the resurrected Christ, he had confidence, he had humility, and he was ready to live urgently for the sake of the gospel. He appeared to the 12. That's the same 12 that all dispersed after Jesus died and were running for their lives and then they became martyrs afterwards. So when they saw the resurrected Christ, it stirred them up and gave them courage to go and risk their life for the sake of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters. Now listen, you give me one eyewitness, and maybe I believe that what they're saying is true. But if you're in a courtroom, and I'm the one that's convicted, Let's say they got me in some, some kind of charge. And they don't just have one eyewitness, they got 500. At some point in there, I'm like, Judge, just go ahead, bro. I did it, and they all know it. They saw it, and I was trying to lie to you. But 500 eyewitnesses is hard to slip something by. You know what I mean? And so this is one of the ways that we know the resurrection is true. We should have no doubt in our mind that the resurrection truly happened 
because we have eyewitness accounts. And then Paul even says, and then he appeared to me on Acts chapter 9 on the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. We see Jesus come down and appear to Paul. Not that, probably one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible, 1 John chapter 1. I got it on the screen for you. Listen to how John talks about this and listen to how this influences the way that God uses him to write the Bible. And we should read every book of the Bible from this knowledge. Verse 1, 1 John chapter 1. He says, that was which, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and has appeared to us in Christ. We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Do you hear how much he's saying? I heard it, I saw it, I touched him, I know it's real, I've heard the message, and the reason I'm sharing it with you is so that you can have fellowship with us. But listen to the best part. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And listen, and we write this to, this to make our joy complete. And so what we see John doing is saying, listen, I'm writing to you what I saw, what I heard, what I felt. I'm writing to you about a person that I know because I want you to have the same relationship with him that I have so that your joy can be complete. I don't know any person in this room that would look at me and say, Billy, I don't need more joy in my life. You want joy in your life? John says it's found in one place, a relationship with God and fellowship with him, deep relationship with God and with other believers. And these are the writings that we stand on. We can trust that the resurrection is true. It is the ultimate apologetic. Listen, any person in this world can try to argue away Christ. And listen, there's been 100,000 millions of people that have tried to argue him away. But ultimately, when you go back to the historical event of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it is true. We have more evidence for it than anything else, basically all the way back in those days. We got secular people that'll tell you it happened. You got a whole book that's accurate. We have more manuscripts of the Bible than any other book during that time period that's gonna tell you that it's right. And so they can try to argue it away because they don't want to align to the teaching that Christ is gonna bring in their life and they don't wanna change. But ultimately, because they don't wanna change, it doesn't change the truth. Because the truth is what sets us free. And it doesn't really matter how we feel about the truth, and we can try to argue it away and cut stuff in and out of here, but either it's the truth or it's not the truth. And I don't have to defend the truth. The truth defends itself, and that's what we have in Christianity. And so when you get in an argument with somebody and they're trying to argue, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, well, let's talk about the life of Christ. Was he truly a man? Did he die? Did he resurrect? And they're like, yeah, I, th I think he did. Okay, well, well, what he said was probably a big deal. What did he say? Let's look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, these are historical accounts of what he said. Okay, well, he said that he was God. And he said that we need to deny ourselves and follow him. And then he said our eternity weighs on it. And then at that point, they got a decision. Okay, do you believe him or do you wanna say, no, I don't believe that so that they don't have to change their life? Like it does, that, That's the issue that we're facing, but it doesn't change the truth. The last thing Paul says here is to remember God's grace in your life. 
Listen to verse nine. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the grace to me was not without effect. It affected my life. Now I work harder than all of them. Yet not but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. Paul says, I know that the resurrection is true and because I know what God has done in my life, then, then I'm ready to, to, to live for him. He says it causes him to work hard for the gospel. Literally motivates him. The grace of God not only saved him, but the grace of God propelled him to live on mission. He knew he was a wretched sinner a persecutor of the church. He was blinded in religion, but then he was saved, redeemed, and now God was using him despite his past as his greatest missionary to plant more and more churches to people that had no access to the gospel. So in the face of doubt, in the face of difficult circumstances, in the face of false teaching, in the face of a world that's being trying to lead us astray, Paul encourages the Corinthians to remember the gospel Remember the eyewitness testimonies that we have before us and remember your story and allow it to strengthen you to stand firm in the midst of our world because remembering the gospel is the fuel. Like it is the fuel that is, needs to be in our gas tanks so that we can run the race that God has called us to run. So the first is an encouragement. The second is a correction. The resurrection is true. This is what Paul's trying to do, physically and spiritually. Remember the situation that's going on in Corinth. Many of the Christians there had grown up with a Greek worldview that, that basically disconnects our soul and our body. And the Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul, but not of the body. And so they believe when we die, many of them thought, uh, that that was the end of their story as far as for their bodies and their souls would go on and live forever, but their bodies would just kind of uh, just evaporate and do their thing. And as a result, many of these Corinthians Christians had bought into that and they were denying that the bodily resurrection was true for them. And so next week we're gonna talk about the bodily resurrection and what all that means in the second half of the chapter. But today, in the first part of the chapter, Paul's really, really challenging them to say, do you really know what you're saying? And I don't think they knew what they were saying, but I think after Paul got through ripping them a new one, they were probably like, yeah, that ain't what we meant. That ain't what we were talking about. But he basically says, do you realize the implications of no resurrection? Paul says, if you do not believe in the physical resurrection of your body, then you're saying that Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead in his body. And if that's true, there are some major implications. And then he goes through the if and then statements. I'll give you four of these implications. The first implication is if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then our faith is futile. It's empty. And we still stand guilty before God. Our faith is in vain. Our faith is futile. It's pointless. It's worthless. We basically have staked our entire life on a decomposed corpse of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago who was not truly God. Not only does he say that, he says if, I, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, secondly, our message is false. Like we're spreading lies. We are false witnesses for uh, God. Our mission is destructive. Our message is not true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we as Connection Church are spreading lies about God all over this community and all over the world and we're offering false hope to people. Thirdly, he says, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are condemned before God. 
Paul says all of those that have died before us that believed in Jesus have gone to perish, that they're experiencing eternal condemnation, everlasting punishment for their sin if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. And then fourthly, he says our obedience to Jesus is to be pitied. He says in this world, if we do for Jesus, everything we do for Jesus is basically a waste of time. People should pity us, feel sorry for us. Any risk that we've taken, any sacrifice that we've made, any trial that we've endured, any next step that we've taken for the sake of Christ should be pitied in this world. In Acts, we see Paul live this way. Listen, he was beaten, he was in prison, he was stoned, he was starved, he was shipwrecked. And he says, verse 30 and 32, why am I doing all this? If Jesus is still dead, then this is dumb. So let me eat, let me drink, let me be merry, because this life makes sense. If this world is all that there is, then I'm giving up the battle and I'm just gonna live it up in the world. I'm gonna take it easy, I'm gonna coast it out, I'm gonna maximize my comforts in this world. And that kind of life would make sense if this world is all that there is. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then Paul says we are not saved, our message is false, we are wasting our time, and we have no hope. We have basically bought into a lie. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that when they deny the resurrection, this is what the implications of that belief are. And then Paul brings it all back to a question. And he brings it back in verses 32 through 34, the question is, are you living in light of the resurrection? So not only does he say, hey, correct this, but now he's gonna show them when we truly believe this, this is how it affects our life. When we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, it changes everything. When our hope is not in this world, but it's in the next world, it changes our mindset about everything. Like we stop living for the things of this world and we start living for the things in the next world. And this is what God has called us to do and how God has called us to live. Because what we believe, listen to me, will always determine how we live. How do I know that? If the fire alarm went off in this building right now and y'all started seeing smoke come up and then flames coming up from this room, if you believe that there's a fire in this room, then you're going to get your youngin and you're gonna get out of this building as fast as you can get out. Because you truly believe that there's a fire in the back of this auditorium. And so Paul's saying, if we truly believe that Christ is who he says he is, then we will do the same thing. It'll affect the way we live our lives. If we believe that there's no resurrection on the opposite end, then it'll also change the way we live our life. And this is what's happening. Listen to verse 32, he says, listen, if the dead are not raised, then we should live this way. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled, bad company corrupts good, good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God and I'm saying this to your shame. The Corinthians were living it up. They were living as if God did not exist. They were living a lifestyle of sin. And the best way to, to understand sin is this, the middle letter, I. When you live in sin, you just live for yourself. You do what you wanna do when you wanna do it because you believe living for yourself is the best thing for you. And this is what they were doing. They were eating, they were drinking, they were being merry. They kinda had that YOLO lifestyle. Let's just, you only live once, so let's do whatever we gotta do. And they were being influenced by the world instead of influencing the world. The best term that I know how to 
accurately describe this lifestyle is Christian atheism. So it's a claim that we're a Christian, but it's just a, a words. It's like a nominal claim. Yes, I'm a Christian, but then we live life as if we're an atheist. So you get the terms Christian atheist. And so basically it's a person that says I'm a Christian, but then their life is lived as if God does not exist. And this was not just a problem in Corinth. Like I wanna tell you, it is the problem in the church today. And it is a huge problem. So here's kind of where I wanna land today. I wanna ask a question. And really the same question Paul asked them. I wanna get personal. Are you living as if God doesn't exist? Like, are you living your life as if Jesus wasn't who he said he was? Are you living your life as if this world is all that we have to live for? And Paul breaks it down and he says, listen, there's really only two types of people in this world. There's people that live for Christ and there's people that don't. There's people who live in light of the resurrection and as if the gospel is true and they believe it with all their heart and they're all in. Or there's people that don't. And he, then he presents evidence and he says there's evidence for both of these. And so as you hear this evidence, I wanna challenge every person in this room, to, if you hadn't heard anything I've said, just in this moment, focus in and say, which of these evidences sound more like me? And then I wanna track it back to ask you what you truly believe. The evidence of a person that is not living in light of the resurrection, a person that does not truly believe the gospel, their life is characterized by sin and ignorance of God, that they live as if Christ doesn't exist. This life is what they have to live for. They surround themselves with people that are living for the same thing because it's comfortable there, because they're living for this world and, and nothing else matters to them. This is usually a person whose life is characterized by the love of money and material possessions and it's somebody who is seeking satisfaction in the things of this world and there's no relationship with God. They may come to church, they may can tell you something about God or Jesus or the Bible, but there's no relationship with God. And on the other hand, you have a person who, who is living in light. Of the, of the resurrection, who truly believes the gospel, who, who, who is all in, like they're surrendered. They believe God is who he says he is and that we're not created for this world, but we're created for the next. And so they're surrendered and they believe that God's plan for their life is better than any plan they could come up with for their own life. And they've embraced a new way of life. And they live their life to love God in a relationship with him. They live their life to love others, to show others the love of God that God has loved them with. And they live their life to make disciples of all nations, to get the greatest hope of the world to every person that has never heard it. And so when you look at your life, I'll tell you this until the day I die, the only prerequisite to God doing a work in your life is a willingness to be honest about where you truly are. Listen, nobody in this room is gonna condemn you because we've, we're all there, like we all wrestle with sin. We're, we're in the same battle that you're in. And so maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, Billy, that's where I'm at. I've, I've never lived as if Christ was truly who he says he was. I, I've nominally said I'm a Christian, but my life has never reflected that. 
And today I tell you, today's the day of salvation for you. You need to truly believe that Christ is who he says he is and allow him to do a work in your heart. Or maybe you're here and you say, Billy, I've already given my life to Christ, but I've just kind of strayed. And like I'm living as if Christ doesn't exist. And I'd say, man, today's the day of repentance. Like come back to Christ. His invitation is come, come. He's not, not mad at you. He's just asking you to come and experience life as it's designed to be experienced. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. I, I don't know where you're at today, but here's what I know. The invitation of Christ is clear. If you're here this morning and you'd say, Billy, I wanna be saved. I wanna surrender my life to Christ. I've never done it before. It's always been just a nominal thing for me, just saying I'm a Christian, but it didn't mean anything. But today I truly believe that Christ is who he says he is and I wanna surrender my life to him. If that's you, I want you to be bold. I want you to lift your hand right where you're at. We'd love to pray with you. Amen. Anybody in here? Anybody else? You'd say, Billy, that's me. That's me. So God, here's my prayer. Lord, for all of us, Lord, I pray, God, that you would give us the courage to be honest with ourselves. And God, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would work in our lives. God, that you would do what only you can do. God, we can't save ourselves. We can't change ourselves if we wanted to. But God, you can. And God, you can surround us with the family that is your church to help us live this life in the way that you've designed us to live it. So this morning, God, I pray, God, for these people that have made decisions. God, for the people all around this room who know that God's drawing them to repentance. God, would you change their heart? Would you change their mind? God, would you change the way, their actions? And God, would you use us as a church God, to just show people who you are in this world. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Well, thank you guys for being here today and we'll see you back next week.